Thank you for listening to the Deep Creek Pulpit, the preaching ministry of Pastor Joshua Hitchcock, pastor of Deep Creek Baptist Church in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to everyday life. As we dive into the Word, you can turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Nearing the end of 1 John. We'll just be in the first five verses today. Now, before we get into this, if you were to go to my parents' home and you found my three-year-old photo and my mom's three-year-old photo, there would be no denying that I was her child. Even though I tried to deny it for many years when I was a teenager... And the many times I would roll my eyes when someone would say, you look just like your mother. Now listen, you just don't tell a teenage boy that he looks like his mother. That's just not cool. But the reality is there are many distinguishing features that I have that makes it undeniable that I am my mother's child. I do have a better beard than she does. And the same is true of my younger brother, my dad. They are so much alike that one time they played a trick on me, passing the phone back and forth, and I believed that I was still talking to the same person. Their voice, their mannerisms, and many other things, there is no denying that my brother Tim is Jeff Hitchcock's son. When we come to 1 John, over the entire letter, we're presented with the distinguishing marks of a Christian. And one commentator narrows them all into three categories. Right belief, uh, that the the genuine believer has the right belief in in, in who Jesus is, which is a doctrinal mark. The right love, right love for God and for his people, the moral mark. And right behavior. And we have a right way of life and obedience and holiness. And what what he's getting at is there are certain marks that you can tell that someone belongs to Jesus. Today we look even further at six marks of a genuine Christian. Just as you would look at those pictures from when I was a child or, 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 or see me with my mom, you'd say there's, there, it's evident that you belong to her, that you are her child. We should be able to look at a person and see the marks in their life. It's, it's evident that that person belongs to Jesus. That person belongs to Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to see in our text is that genuine Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to read the first five verses, and then we'll dive in. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins this way. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The first thing that we see here is that genuine Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It says here in the text, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the word Christ literally means anointed, it, and it refers to Jesus every time this word is used in the New Testament. 
It's crystal clear that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah who would bring redemption and deliverance to his people. What we believe about Jesus matters. Peter was asked an important question by Jesus in the Gospels. In Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus asked, Who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples respond, Well, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Well, some say you're Elijah. Well, they're obviously incorrect. Now, that's a lot of... Jesus was, was, was very interesting to the people of his day. He taught as well with authority. He did perform miracles. He did many great things. And so there was a lot of commotion about who Jesus is. So he asked, who, who do people say that I am? And there's all kinds of responses, all kinds of answers of who people think Jesus is. And they're all wrong. Today, there are various beliefs about Jesus. Even Muslims will say that Jesus was a prophet. Many think Jesus was a good moral teacher, and that's about it. There are lots of opinions about Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, uh, basically says that Jesus is one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Uh, Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father. Jesus claimed that he would die and rise again. And either he is a liar and he's none of those things, that he is not the Son of God and he says that he was, and he's just lying about it. Or he's a lunatic, he believes he is and he's not. Or he's Lord, that he actually is who he says he was. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is who he says he was, and we have many reasons to believe that. And Jesus probes further with the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's probably one of the most important questions that could be asked. Now, who do they say that I am? There's a lot of people that think different thoughts about Jesus. A lot of commotion about who Jesus is. John the Baptist, Elijah. There's probably some other answers that the text doesn't give us. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? Peter responds... Says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Of course, that was revealed to him by the Father. His flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But Peter's confession here of who Jesus is forms the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation that Jesus is the Messiah. The genuine believer has a right belief about the person and work of Christ. As we approach Easter, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was crucified on a Roman cross next to two thieves, and rose three days after his death. Who Jesus is matters, and genuine Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What we believe about Jesus is a distinguishing mark of Christian. There may be people who say they love God. There may be people who say they're Christians. But if they don't believe that Jesus is the born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross, and that he rose again, they are not Christians. This is fundamental to who we are as believers. These are essential doctrines about the gospel. 
And as we grow in Christ, they cannot be denied. But ultimately, it is not just that we believe the right things about Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We put our trust in Him. There are many people who believe the right things about Jesus, but are trusting in Him. James tells us, when we looked at the book of James uh, this past year, even the demons believe and tremble. The demons know who Jesus is. They're not trusting in Him. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this verse, says this, It is not belief about a doctrine, nor an opinion, nor a formula, but belief concerning a person. Belief or trust in Jesus as the Messiah is evidence that we belong to Him. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what everybody else is saying, but who do you say that I am? The question that He asked to Peter is the question He's asking you this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? The second thing we see here is that genuine Christians have been born again. It says here in verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The theme of being born again is all throughout 1 John. In 1 John 2, 29, it says everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Chapter 3, verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God. In 5.18, later on, as we'll see, we read, we know that no one who is born of God sins. We see many marks here of the one who has been born again. The one who is born again doesn't habitually practice sin, but righteousness. The one who has been born of God loves other believers. The genuine Christian has been born again. Now, John, who wrote these letters, the first, the second, and third John, is the same John who actually wrote the Gospel of John. And we see a lot of, if you read the Gospel of John, and then you read first, second, and third John, you see a lot of similarities. You see a lot of the similar themes being picked up, the same things being addressed. And so in the Gospel of John, we get to uh, John chapter 3. And we know John chapter 3. We have the famous verse of John three sixteen: God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here, we get into John, we see Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus after seeing some miracles. He says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, we know that Nicodemus sees something special about Jesus. No one can do these things if God is not with him. But he doesn't understand that Jesus is God. And that's actually what John's whole gospel is about, believing in Jesus, because he is the Word become flesh. He is the one who, the, the Word who has been, who, who is God from the beginning. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Nicodemus is quite a miss here. We, we know that no one can do these unless God is with him. Well, God must be with you in the sense that God is with every single one of us. But no, Jesus was God. Nicodemus doesn't understand that yet. So Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. As probably you and I would have been if we would have heard this 
passage for the first time. What do you mean born again? And Nicodemus' answer reveals he's still kind of thinking naturally. And again, you and I would be too. A man cannot enter his mother's womb a second time, can he? That's what Nicodemus was thinking. And if you and I were to hear this for the first time in his place, that's what we would think. What do you mean, Jesus, being born again? I mean, it doesn't doesn't work. Of course, that's not what Jesus means. And Jesus says, it says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What he's referring to, the one who is born of water refers to physical birth. The one who is born of the spirit refers to the new birth. The theologians call regeneration. This giving of life, giving of spiritual life. One cannot enter or even see the kingdom of God prior to this new birth. Ephesians tells us that we're dead in our sins. We, we can't even see spiritual things unless the Spirit of God works in us and causes this new birth in us. When we are born again, we repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ. And there's a notable change that happens in our life. We forsake sin and we pursue righteousness. We love other believers. All these things that 1 John talks about become realities in our life. We obey Him. We We keep His commandments. We pursue holiness. The genuine believer is someone who has experienced this new birth. You've been born again. Now, I can't tell you to be born again. That's not something that the pastor can can do. That's something that God does in someone's life. And it's unexplainable. If you're a believer today, there's been a point in your life where this has happened to you. You're living your own life for yourself. Maybe not even living a horrible life, but you were living to please yourself just as I was a young boy. And then the gospel comes over you in a way that it's never come over you before. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Maybe it was the first time you heard it. The Lord does something in your heart. So we have to respond in repentance and faith. That's God bringing about the new birth in your life to, to respond to the gospel. I grew up in church my entire life. Heard the gospel from a young age. Didn't deny the facts of the gospel. I believed them to be true. But I did not understand really why they were reported to me. It was in seventh grade at a, a youth camp, and I've shared my testimony before, but I was sitting there in one of our worship services when the gospel was just made real to me. It was in that moment I was born again, that I received that new birth. And the Christian life doesn't mean it's perfect, that, that we don't sin, that we don't mess up. We've seen that in First John. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But the new birth, there's a notable difference in your life when that happens. We begin to have a different mentality of who God is. We begin to think differently about who Jesus is. We begin to see our sin differently. We begin to have spiritual eyes. It's almost as if when Paul was converted, he was given scales on his eyes and he was blinded. 
And when he came to faith in Christ, Ananias came to preach the gospel to him. He saw with new eyes. He saw Jesus for who he was. That's what happens to us every time we believe the gospel. This new birth at work in our lives causes us to see things differently. We begin to see Jesus for who he is. We begin to see our sin for what it is. And we run to Christ. Genuine Christians have been born again. The third thing that we see here is that genuine Christians love the Father. Love is a central theme in 1 John. The word appears more than 30 times in 1 John 4, 7 to 5, 3. And occurs five times between verses 1 through 3 right here. What we see first, it says, whoever loves the Father. Now more comes after this for sure, but we first note here that genuine believers love the Father. Our love for God is the basis of the Ten Commandments. When someone asks Jesus to summarize the Ten Commandments, Mark 12, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God is worthy of our highest devotion and our utmost affection. He is the chief object of love for the believer. We noted last week that God is love. It defines who he is. And he demonstrated his love for us in the sending of his son, Jesus. We demonstrate our love for him by trusting in Jesus and exalting Christ, his son. Whoever loves the father, it says, loves the child born of him. Which leads us to our next point. How exactly do we demonstrate our love for God. It says here, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. The one way that we demonstrate our love for the Father is by loving his children. And do you love God? Then you will love the people that God loves. We saw last week that the one who says he loves God. And hates his brother is a liar. This week we see that whoever loves God loves God's born again children. How do we demonstrate to God that we love him? By loving his children. By those loving whom he loves. Whom he sent Jesus to die for. How do we exactly do we show love for God's people? Some practical ways here. Number one. We love spending time with Him in worship. I see so many people say that they love God, but they don't go to church. And I'm perplexed by that. You love God, you say, but you don't have any desire to be around the people that God sent Jesus to die for. You say you love God, but you don't want to gather with those whom Jesus shed his blood for. I don't understand it. I wish somebody would make that make sense to me, but it doesn't. We ought to long to gather with God's people because we love spending time with them. You see, when, when, when we're born again, God gives us a desire and a love for the people of God. 
In, in the book of Ephesians, we, we see the Jews and Gentiles, very different people, people that naturally would have hated each other. <clears throat> people that had very different cultures and backgrounds and they're saved, saved by the same gospel, made alive by the same grace of God. And it says that the blood of Christ brings the two groups into one. That's the church. The gospel unites us together and so genuine Christians love God's people. We love being around the people of God. There should be no mentality of, well, I, gotta, I guess I've got to get up at church again. I'd rather sleep in. No, we should long to gather with the people of God. Each week we should be like, I can't wait till Sunday where I can sing the praises of God with the people of God. That should be something that we long for. And I'm not sure why the folks in the letter of Hebrews uh, neglected gathering. It says, don't forsake the uh, gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some. I'm not sure why they neglected gathering. But there's so many reasons people do so today. But Christians should be eager to meet with and worship with other Christians. It should be such the joy of our hearts. And if we have to work on a Sunday or be out sick a Sunday, then it should cause us to long to, to gather together with the people of God all the more the next time we can. We love gathering with the people of God. We love serving them. It's the second thing. Doing things for other believers ought not to be a burden for those who love God. It ought to be a joy to serve the children of God. We ought to look for ways to be a blessing to one another. It ought to be a joy to serve those whom Jesus gave his life for. As Jesus shed his own blood for the children of God, we ought to see how can, how can I sacrifice for them? How can I sacrifice for my fellow believers? How can I serve them in a way that reflects the love of Christ? So genuine Christians love the Father, but genuine Christians love the people of God, love his children. The fourth thing that we'll see here is that genuine Christians obey God's commands. Genuine Christians obey God's commands. The text says in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and observe His commandments. That's very interesting. Verse 1 says... Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So how do we show our love for God? Well, by loving his children. Very clear in verse 1, but verse 2 is almost the opposite. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Do you see that? How do we love God? How do we show our love for God by loving his children? How do we show that we love the children of God by loving God? Kind of a cycle here. How do I love God's people? Love God's people when I put God first and love Him above all. And I love God's people when I live in obedience to His commands. Now, <clears throat> obeying God's commands is one way that we show love for one another because many of God's command, commands specifically deal with our relationships to one another. Just look at the Ten Commandments. 
What does the first have to do with our love for God? Not having any graven images, keeping the, the Sabbath day holy, not using the Lord's name in vain. And if I disregard those commands, I'm not being very loving towards God or towards others. But the second table of the commands have a relational aspect to other people. Do not steal. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Do not bear false witness. These have to deal with how we love one another. Remember, as, as God summed up the Ten Commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the ten, that, that summarizes the Ten Commandments. We love one another by obeying these commands. So by obeying God, we demonstrate our love for one another in obedience to the commands of God. When we live in obedience to God, we display that we love the children of God. It, it, it's interesting that God has so worked in His commands, stipulations that are evidence that we love other people. Verse 3 then tells us, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. We demonstrate that we love the children of God when we obey. And we demonstrate that we love God when we live in obedience to Him. One of the ways that parents are loved by their children is when their children obey them. It makes for an easy time. But disobedience is not loving. But as a kid, and I'm going to be honest, I wasn't the easiest. And if my mom were here, she'd probably give a hearty amen to that. I hated following rules. But loving parents establish rules because we love our children and want them to thrive and be safe. I know that now as a parent. I did not know that as a 10-year-old boy or as a teenager. I never understood why my mom and dad didn't want me to go hang out with those friends. Why won't you let me do that? Why do you have these rules? Well, I didn't like them. Well, they were there to... Keep me on the straight and narrow, and I'm grateful for that now. We establish rules because we love our children and want them to thrive and be safe. It's, it's not loving to let your children to go play near the street. It's loving to have a rule saying, hey, only go this far. That's love. <coughs> Those rules are motivated by love. In the same way, God's commands aren't a burden. They ought to be a light because God's commands exist because it is the best way to live and thrive in His creation. He, he, he set His laws in motion not to be just a, a, a mean deity, just to kind of show, show us who's the, the boss. He set these commands in motion because He loves us. Well, they're for our good. We demonstrate our love for God and our love for His children those whom he has redeemed by living in obedience to his commands. Someone who says they love God, but whose life is not marked by obedience, does not truly love him. One of the genuine marks of a, a Christian is that we live in obedience to God's word. The fifth and final point that we'll see here 
that genuine Christians have overcome the world. It says here in our final two verses, beginning in verse 4, For whatever is born of God, there's that idea of being born again, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We kind of come full circle in verse 5. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We saw that in verse 1. Our final two verses here show that those that are born of God overcome the world and that we overcome the world victoriously by faith in Christ. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, the devil has been attempting to draw God's people away from him. Yet the fall was part of God's plan. The whole Bible is a story of God redeeming the world in Jesus. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, Satan tempts Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't fall into temptation. Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And now, through faith in Jesus, we overcome the evil one as Christ overcame him. Satan tried to mess this whole plan up when he tempted Adam and Eve. Well, that was part of God's plan from the beginning. Satan tries to mess this up by tempting Jesus. Satan loses. Jesus rises victorious. Lives in perfect obedience to the Father. And then when Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought that he had won. The Son of God is dead. My plan has succeeded. Imagine the devil's face when Jesus takes his first breath. Satan had been defeated. Satan has lost. And Jesus, not only did Jesus overcome sin, but Jesus has now overcome death. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought that he won, but then Jesus defeated death and he rose again. Now, of course, Satan does whatever he can now to keep believers from placing their faith in Christ. Satan sows false gospels in the mix. He twists Truths, he causes doubt. He wants nothing more than for our faith to be in anything but the true gospel. So when we completely and firmly place our faith in the resurrected Son of God, we overcome the schemes of the evil one. Faith is what overcomes the enemy. When a soul is saved, when a, when a, when a, when a believer is born again and repents of sin and places their faith in Christ, Satan is defeated. He's crushed. We've seen in the Gospels, the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the, and the lost son where, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, where just as they would find the lost coin and the lost sheep and just as the, the father receives his son and they throw a party, it's, it says that when one sinner repents, the angels rejoice. And the reverse is also true. When a sinner repents and places their faith in Christ, Satan's crushed because he's lost. If your faith is in Jesus this morning, if your faith is in the, the resurrected Son of God, then you have overcome the evil one. 
Paul says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through him. Your strength to to resist the devil comes from your union with Christ. As you are united with Christ by faith, the enemy is already defeated. And Christ has overcome the enemy and by faith you have as well. So when Satan comes to tempt you, he tempts you to sin. Your response ought to be, I belong to Jesus. Belong to him. And then when he accuses you for when you do sin, you look to Jesus and say, I've been forgiven by him. Satan has been defeated and you have overcome by faith. Now, whether I like it or not, it is evident that I do look like my mother. And many of my features come from her, and there are distinguishing marks in, that, that make it evident that I am her son. In the same way, the things presented today are distinguishing marks of the born again, spirit filled believer. Is your life marked by these things? Is it evident to the watching world that you belong to Jesus? Let's pray.